But if you know my background and you know that my issue above all issues is religious liberty and therefore pro-life, the sanctity of traditional marriage, that heritage is not just going to be a participant in, we want to be a leader of the movement when it comes to that. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Nate, Johnny, and Marlo. Today, Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation, is discussing with us one of American conservatism's most storied institutions and today's most salient policy topics. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Johnny, thanks for having me. You know, but I'll say for your your listeners what a fan I am of ISI, dating back to my early years as a history professor two decades ago and have sent a lot of students over the years your way. And of course, your institution and mine are joined at the hip. Uh, we, we are brothers of the same movement and obviously in many respects of the same board members and godfathers. It just pleases me to no end to be affiliated with you. That's great. And I appreciate uh, all you've done uh, this semester in particular, uh, teaching at our new George Washington Statesmanship Program. It really means a lot to have you involved with our, our students and alumni. My pleasure. Y'all do great work. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. And before we get to learn more about Heritage and Dr. Roberts, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. We also want to invite alumni, faculty, and supporters to attend our second inaugural homecoming weekend featuring Victor Davis Hansen, Ross Douthat, Patrick Deneen, among others, which will take place at our beautiful campus in Wilmington, Delaware on May 13th through the 14th. So if you're interested in attending, please go to our website to register. Um, so Dr. Roberts, thanks for joining us. I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the Heritage Foundation as a storied institution on the right already, but could you start by describing Heritage's place in the conservative movement today and perhaps giving us uh, more context about the role that that has been uh, historically? Well, thanks for that question, Marlo. Next year, 2023, we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary. So among the institutions on the right, we are one of the oldest, not the oldest, but one of the oldest. And in a lot of ways, and I say this as a conservative and as a historian of the United States, it's good to have some years under your belt. Uh, Having said that, I'm excited by so many of the new organizations that have cropped up on the right and, in fact, participate fully in helping them get going. That leads me to the headline that I would write about, the Heritage Foundation. Not only are we an academic institution first, that is, public policy, the analysis of that at an academic level first, but we are also an organization that has an advocacy arm, a 501c4. What's really distinctive about Heritage is that in an era when many institutions, including right of center, will lead with advocacy and then do the sort of rifle shot research to substantiate that, we lead with the research. Our analysts tell us what the problems are, what the solutions need to be, and then we orient our advocacy around it. And I'll sum up uh, this response by saying what's also distinctive about heritage and is a very important comment for me to make about the history of this great institution is to, to paraphrase from my predecessor, my friend, one of our founders, Dr. Ed Fulner, someone ISI knows well, 
we're all about addition and multiplication in the conservative movement. So this unfortunately is an era when given the emergence of a lot of organizations on the center right, especially aggravated by social media, there's some sharp elbows out there. And what we try to do at Heritage is welcome everyone, understand that we're not going to see eye to eye on everything, but honoring the words of, of our founder and my good friend, friend Ed Fulner, you know, what Heritage is doing under my leadership is what it's always done, which is to facilitate great conversations like this. Hopefully friendships, including with organizations who may not see eye to eye with us. It's actually very fulfilling and ultimately gets to the heart of what it means to be a conservative. Dr. Roberts, one of the reasons I think it's so exciting uh, for both us and our listeners to have you on the podcast is precisely because the Heritage Foundation occupies such a preeminent place in movement conservatism. It really has been the sort of central institution, at least in D.C., of defining what it means to be a conservative in terms of uh, who policymakers listen to and how sort of policy gets made. It's no, uh, it's no surprise to you or to any of our listeners that the movement has uh, been going through something of an identity crisis uh, in the last few years. And I think one of the really exciting things about you taking over for those of us who are interested or sympathetic to some of the new strains of thought or resurgent strains of thought on the right is that you have been open to at least having a conversation about the varying sort of ideas of how the movement goes forward. That was something you made very clear in the first sort of opening essay that you wrote for National Review about the movement. I'm curious in your capacity as the president of the Heritage Foundation, what you think the top issues in the conservative movement are today with how conservatives think about policy and just in terms of first principles and what you think we can do to remedy those going forward. Boy, Nate, that's a great question. In fact, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a question that on the one hand is easy to answer as a lifelong conservative, but on the other hand, it's simultaneously difficult to answer. And what I mean by that is, you know, as a history professor, I, I kind of like to talk and, uh, and come up with many, many factors, many different aspects of a, of a challenge. So let me be as succinct as possible and say that I love the formulation of your question genuinely. And I want to respond to a comment you made just now about you know, under my leadership, the fact that I and, and hopefully increasingly my colleagues here are open to the conversations on the right. We darn well better be, uh, because that's what it means to be a conservative. You know, the it, it's easy for us to say, well, I don't agree with a particular stance by conservative organization XYZ, and therefore I'm not going to talk with them. That's easy. But at the heart of conservatism is something that is far upstream from whatever happens politically and in policy in Washington, D.C. And it is how we comport with one another in civil society, the health of our institutions of civil society. My passion is not just the policy and sometimes the politics at the federal level, but far more importantly, as a conservative, as someone who has founded an institution and run a couple of others, that we as conservatives lean into the conversations and relationships, even those that are strained, that help us to build what social scientists call mediating institutions of civil society. All of that to say, to answer the heart of your question about the issues that define conservatism where it is, I think the, the, broad, the broadest agreement among all of the center right, including you know, old line organizations, sort of mainline organizations like Heritage and, and new organizations, is that we are hostile. We're not just skeptical toward, we are hostile toward centralized power. 
And I think that's one of the things that the emergence of some of these new organizations has really allowed me and Heritage to redouble our efforts against. And so I really want to applaud ISI, many new organizations, including some that I don't see eye to eye with. But the point is, we make each other better. And, and conversely, move on to a second issue. I think that Heritage, and maybe I in a, in a tiny way, can make some of these new movements on the right better by reminding them, as I've been apt to do recently, that they often don't talk about federalism. You know, I, I think, for example, the conversation brought forward by national conservatives is great. I disagree with some of it, but it doesn't mean I'm going to refuse to have a conversation about it or that someone who is affiliated with that movement is unwelcome inside Heritage. You know, just, just today as we're recording this, Senator Rubio was in our theater. I welcomed him warmly as my colleagues did. He talked about China. Uh, I am a China hawk. Uh, Heritage is a China hawk institution under my leadership. Our board is unanimously a China hawk institution. Doesn't mean we want to go to war with them. It means we need to recognize the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. He also talked about, Senator Rubio also talked about a pain point for us. Even though I'm a China hawk like he is, I want to know more about what he means when he uses the phrase industrial policy. My economist colleagues and friends at Heritage want to know more details. Our posture is not that that's a terrible idea and we can't talk about it. Our posture is that's intriguing. Let, give us some specifics. And especially given the talent that we have inside Heritage to draft bills, to advocate for great ideas, let's have that conversation. Heritage doing that doesn't mean that we're violating some longstanding position we've had against an industrial policy per se. We are saying this is a national security exception for those of us who do prioritize the free market. And it leads me finally to the last issue that I'll highlight, and it is family policy. I think that that is something, you know, as a, as a lifelong pro-lifer, as a dad of four, as someone who believes that almost nothing good happens in the nation's capital politically, that is to say that the much better results happen at the local and state level, I understand that the family is the most important institution in civil society. It's broken. Its brokenness has been accelerated by wrongheaded government policy. And at the very least, we need to have government policy that stops breaking. So, Dr. Roberts, just to tease apart, I really like the formulation of opposing centralized power as being something that I think is shared by conservatives of, of many different stripes. But obviously, one of the tensions in the conservative movement today is how much emphasis you place on centralized government power versus how much emphasis you pay, place on uh, centralized private power. Now, of course, any sort of one, uh, particularly this is something that I think the libertarians correctly talk about, uh, knows that a lot of centralized private power often benefits from uh, friendly relationships with centralized government power. But there's real debate about the role of state power in combating something like the centralized power of big technology companies, of corporate powers that are undermining mining American workers or are sort of actively using their economic power to push a, a cultural ideology that conservatives oppose. You know, I'm curious if you think that those sort of opposed impulses in the conservative movement can be reconciled, uh, and if there's a place for both of them in heritage. Folks who would be more open to using government power to go after something like big tech versus those who'd say that we should let the market decide and that it's not the government's role. Gosh, Nate, once again, you ask a wonderful question. Not that you need to hear that from me, but I just have been a student of teaching and a student of great questions my entire professional career. And so I, I love your questions there. But the, 
to get to the heart of it, to answer the great question, the short answer is yes. I, I do think that those largely can be reconciled. I think there will always be a tension there. But let me just say this, this headline in all caps, biggest font that I can write on a single newspaper page, there is a problem with both centralized public power, centralized government power, and centralized private power. And what we are living through today with not just the centralized private power of big tech, but their collusion, and I use that word as an academic, I use it intentionally, and I use it to trigger our friends on the left. Their collusion with the centralized public power is a travesty, it's an injustice, it's evil, and we have to break it and fix it. And so it is not a coincidence, as I think many in the movement have observed in my four months at Heritage, that the first major paper published under my leadership was on big tech. Now, look, let me just give you a little bit of an explanation about that, because it actually it, it, it enhances my response to your wonderful question about centralized private power versus centralized public power. When I was leading my previous group in Texas, we had the same problem that Heritage and so many of our, our, our friends on the right had, which was we don't want to have to invoke centralized public power to fix centralized private power. And so at Heritage, when I got here, I said, look, guys, we're having a problem publishing this paper because our impulses are right. You know what I mean? It's, it's actually good that if you're in a think tank, unlike a group that's focused on campaigns, elections, or the whims of the day, we're not just going to shoot from our hip and say, on this really big issue of what to do with big tech, this is what we're doing. No, we got to really research it. And here at Heritage, we, not to, to go into the weeds on this yet, unless you want to, we have this one voice policy where we speak with one voice. And that means we have to do an exceptional job internally of allowing every scholar who's got some skin in the game on the issue to say his or her piece and to figure out what our one voice will be. And so where we landed to sum up this story is on this paper that says, among many other tools at our disposal to fix this problem of big tech and the fact that they are undermining civil society and they're using our laws and the free market to do so is antitrust. It pains us at Heritage to say, we believe in our best judgment that the best big tool to use, the best big hammer to use against big tech is antitrust. But if we need to update it, let's have the political courage to update antitrust legislation. But let us not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And the good right now is for big tech to understand you darn well better be on the run when conservatives come into power. And the conservatives darn well better do what they're going to say they're going to do because they're going to win a majority this fall by railing against big tech. That's the role of heritage in trying to reconcile this. And so postscript to that final comment is what you're hearing in that response from me in our attempt to reconcile those two things is that at Heritage, we try to reconcile them in a practical way. Uh, we're all about some part of our day being in the theoretical and the abstract and the academic, but ultimately our comparative advantage, what we offer to the conservative movement is taking the theoretical down to the sidewalk and saying, you want to fix this problem? This is how you do it. Kevin, and I, I would applaud you, especially, you know, on, the, on those two fronts, uh, China and big tech. I really do think, you know, the way and the direction that you're leading Heritage right now, even, you know, compared to several years ago, not thinking of Heritage uniquely, but other conservative movement institutions, you know, I think there was a lot of resistance to kind of tackling those two 
issues head on. And I think you've done a tremendous job and I've been you know, thrilled to follow what you're writing on it and publishing since you've taken the helm. Uh, another policy-related question uh, is the issue of criminal justice reform. And on this issue, I think you know it's kind of challenging when you think of public policy because sometimes there are things that's uh, politically advantageous to lean into that very much benefits you electorally, but then you sometimes have to check whether or not is it actually sound policy. And you know, thinking back again to a few years ago when I was running uh, the American Conservative Magazine, for example. Criminal justice reform was something that was broadly popular on the right, at least in Washington, D.C. I know Texas Public Policy um, Foundation had done work on that. You know, I heard I heard the arguments. I think a lot of them came from a more libertarian place. I was sympathetic to many of them. And then following 2020, we saw a lot of the, you know, a lot of the criminal justice reform policies of the progressives implemented in major cities, skyrocketing crime, violence just total, you know, disaster and train wreck. And so I, you know, I I definitely think we need uh, a turn back towards law and order. But I'm but I'm wanting to know, is there a way to reconcile what I think is a, a necessary and justified turn towards restoring order with, you know, elements of that criminal justice project? Uh, that you you had worked on in the past? Or or were, were, were they wrong with criminal justice reform to begin with? Man, I, I, I praise Nate for his question. I'm going to do the same thing for you, Johnny, and, and not just to be polite. Uh, no surprise that all three of you are asking, I think, all the right questions. And and I'm, I'm actually extremely grateful to be able to have a question about criminal justice reform because that really started in Texas, at least as we understand it in the modern era, as being, quote unquote, conserv- conservative criminal justice reform. It started at the Texas Public Policy Foundation well before my arrival Governor Rick Perry, you know, back in the early 2000s was a big advocate for that. And, and the, the impulse of it, and I'll ultimately, after a couple of minutes, get back to this impulse because it's instructive. The impulse was twofold. The libertarian part of the movement wanted to, to uh, both save some money because the, the Texas state budget was in crisis and there were a lot of prisons that were costly. And they also wanted the civil liberties component of, of our libertarian wing, wanted to make sure that we were not over-criminalizing uh, simple crimes, and not to be dismissive of those crimes, but simple relative to murder. And then the other wing, the other lung, I would argue, of the conservative movement, often called social conservatives, really came at it from a human person standpoint, saying that for first-time nonviolent offenders who are going to complete their term and they are going to come back in society, that data showed that they would have higher rates of recidivism if they stayed in prison than if they were rehabilitated, especially if that rehabilitation was indeed focused on whatever their cross to bear was. That might have been chemical dependency. It might have been a lack of formal education, et cetera. Those impulses are really good. I mean, they, they square, I would argue, perfectly with the whole part of the conservative movement. So dignity of the human person, emphasis on first-time nonviolent offenders, wanting to save money, sign me up for that. I'm a conservative, not a libertarian, but I love that libertarians are part of the movement because they remind us that we spend way too much money in government. And then also, let's make sure that we're not over-criminalizing stupid things. Well, what happened was that that, that movement conservative criminal justice reform. And I'm, if y'all don't mind, I'm going to be really candid here because uh, you're, you're, I'm not an expert on this, but you're talking to a guy who ran the organization that was running it. That 
criminal justice reform effort got hijacked by the left. And it got hijacked by foundations on the left that once had been at least libertarian organizations. And that hijacking happened in spite of all of the goodwill and good intentions of people in the Trump administration, starting with President Trump, who understood that there is a real injustice in some of our criminal code and certainly our civil code. You know, as an example of that, one of the best lawyers I know, John Malcolm, who leads our legal center here at Heritage. Man, John is a law and order guy, but he's completely on board, as I am, with addressing some of these problems. All of that to say, I think that the Trump campaign got enamored with something that turned out to be a fiction, which and with the best of intentions, I'm not casting stones here, but in hindsight, we know it just didn't happen. And that was, if you work on criminal justice reform, you will triple the percentage of African-American voters who vote Republican. And look, that, that didn't happen. And therefore, for me, leading Texas public policy and right on crime and the aftermath of the election, I looked at one other dynamic that I want to introduce in my response. And it was this ridiculous, egregious, evil movement to defund the police and to burn our cities. And you know what? The, some of the funders over at the, the Koch entities, not all of them, but some of the funders decided they would participate in and fund some of the seminars about how you defund the police and stop over-criminalizing our cities. That's when there was a major break between Texas public policy and all of those entities a heritage, of course, has sustained that break. We're simply not going to do business with them on that issue. Thankfully, under the leadership of my friend Brett Tolman, a former U.S. attorney, right on crime, housed at Texas Public Policy Foundation, has been able to get back to its roots of conservative criminal justice reform. Heritage is on board with that. And the reason we are, to sum up here, is because it's focused on the dignity of the human person, making responsible expenditures when it comes to imprisoning people, and also making sure that if you're a first-time nonviolent offender and you're coming out of prison, that why don't we rehabilitate you? Because we're going to save money in the long run. Let us be really crystal clear, however, Johnny, that if you're a criminal, you need to serve your time. And conservatives, especially those involved in this movement, need to lead with the fact that they are law and order first rather than interested in changing anything in the criminal justice system first. I wonder, Dr. Roberts, if you could explain uh, for our listeners the distinction between a conservative approach to criminal justice reform and a sort of progressive or, or left-wing one. Because I'm someone who agrees with some criminal justice reforms in that there are clearly laws on the books that I think don't make sense and don't make America safer. But I'm also a law and order guy first and foremost. I mean, I'm someone who thinks that Tom Cotton often has it right. Uh, on a lot sure, of police and law issues. Right. And I, I think that there are two kinds of conservative approaches to criminal justice reform. One is one that actually takes the basic conservative insights about politics and human nature and begins from there. And another one is one that I think you see some of our libertarian friends making sometimes where it, it more or less is just a slightly more moderate version of the left-wing package on criminal justice reform. So I, I'm curious to hear you explain the difference between the two. Yeah, the, the, uh, the former is 100% the right way. Uh, we have tried the latter for uh, 10 years and it, and it didn't work and it came back and, and really bit us in the rear, including politically. But the difference, to get to the heart of it, Nate, so that I can answer your question pointedly, would be exemplified by things like defunding the police. Uh, conservative criminal justice reformers find that abhorrent because they start with the premise that law and order, ordered liberty, as y'all know better than anybody, is, is where we start. Whereas 
the other wing of conservative criminal justice reform, which is more libertarian, more open to working in coalitions across the entire political spectrum, would have a certain openness to what they call efficiency and spending in law enforcement. I find that abhorrent. The second point is often exemplified with the decriminalization of certain offenses, like certain drug possession. Uh, folks in the first camp where I am are opposed to that, uh, period. I mean, uh, full stop. Um, and then folks in the, in the latter camp, uh, often younger conservatives, libertarian types, are proponents, actually. They're not just fine with their, but they're proponents with the decriminalization of marijuana and even worse. I happen to think, and I don't mean this to be you know, a shill, for everything that Heritage is doing, although that is part of my job, that my colleagues, John Malcolm and Paul Larkin and our Mies Center actually personify the right position. And I, I mean that genuinely. So John and Paul on the matter of decriminalizing uh, drugs say, look, that's not law and order. It's also not criminal justice reform. You're actually harming the human person by doing that. Contrast that position, which they criticize, with a position that we celebrate at Heritage about criminal justice reform, which is that if you've got a, a criminal code and a civil code that are really built for federal bureaucrats and they're not built for transparency, they're certainly not built for justice, then let's be sure that we're addressing that. John had a wonderful op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about that about a month ago. All of that to say, the pain that I felt you know, being one of the leaders of that movement, frankly, I felt betrayed by people left of center. They were not operating in good faith. I didn't feel betrayed by conservative friends because I knew their intentions. It's in the past and we've learned our lesson. And, and I can assure you that Heritage and I will never participate in the worst of criminal justice reform. We have way too much work to do on the good stuff, which really is rooted in law and order. Dr. Roberts, um, you mentioned earlier that you're a pro-lifer, and um, I want to kind of hear your thoughts on some social issues, given that in a few months, you know, we're expected to hear a decision on an abortion case, the Dobbs case. And um, so for listeners, that's where the court will decide whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Personally, it's it's kind of my um, litmus test of sorts if someone if someone is a not only a social conservative, but a conservative at all on how they stand on abortion. So I'm curious... And then that's just, you know, one of the, the the most poignant topics that conservatives have to grapple with and our country has to grapple with at, at large. But um, I'm curious, do you think social conservatives have been kind of the junior partner in uh, the conservative coalition? And if so, what does Heritage plan to do about that? Well, to answer your wonderful question pointedly, Marlo, the answer is a resounding yes. We I am a social conservative, although I tend to just call myself a conservative and reject adjectives, but I don't mean that to be combative with your framing. We have been the junior partners, and more often than not, in fact, it's, it's the rule to which there are only a few exceptions in, in my adult life, is that uh, we get used. We get exploited. Uh, this happens in funding bills when you know Republican members of the House and Senate who are not as conservative as some of us are able to get Republican votes because they put on a pro-life writer. That's a terrible practice that Heritage always calls out. Uh, worse still, there's an assumption that we're always going to come to the party because we get an invitation, but you know we're given much worse food and drink at the party than the other conservatives. And therefore, what is Heritage going to do about it? Well, Heritage has always been very right-minded about this. You know, our, our president, longtime founder, Dr. Ed Fulner, is a wonderful pro-lifer. My immediate predecessor, Kay James, wonderful pro-lifer. 
But if you know my background and you know that my issue above all issues is religious liberty and therefore pro-life, the sanctity of traditional marriage, that heritage is not just going to be a participant in, we want to be a leader of the movement when it comes to that. All of that to say that, you know, I, I operate with the assumption that about 60 or 65% of the American people are center-right. There are some of them who would be willing to forsake some of the social issues, if not all of them, for the sake of issues they care more deeply about. My point to them is, which I've been saying since I was president to Wyoming Catholic College and rejected federal student loans and grants on the grounds of religious liberty and social conservatism is that if you give up on those issues, you've lost what it means to be a conservative. And and therefore, you know, paint me dogmatic, paint me stubborn for telling the Washington Post, as I did early in my tenure, that social conservatives really do define whether someone is a movement conservative. I caught some flack about that from some libertarian friends who said, and their friends who said, oh man, have you seen the polls recently? They disagree with you. Polls? Polls tell us what it means to be conservative. Polls tell us what it means to believe in enduring principles that none of us as humans have the power to change. That proves the point. But I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, so I'll stop. It seems like one of the distinctions when we talk about sort of social conservatism versus perhaps the sort of business or libertarian wing of the GOP and the conservative movement is not even just between conservatives and libertarians, but it's between in the sort of think tank, conservative thought and policy space. It's between the sort of economics side of the, of the movement and, and the social or cultural side. And that exists within think tanks as well. And of course, I, I don't want to get too far into the sort of divisions within heritage itself, but I wonder if you think that that is a, a real issue in the conservative policy and thought space is an overemphasis on an economic approach to thinking about policy and thinking of the human person as a sort of homo economicus rather than uh, in the sort of traditional Judeo-Christian sense and, and approaching policy from, from that first principle instead. Yeah, look, I, in, in my decade of experience or so leading public policy groups, I think that's the number one tension. And, and here at Heritage, I'm certainly not speaking out of school by saying, we have those tensions. And the reason it's not speaking out of school is because we have those tensions by design. I think one of the reasons that we're influential, which is not to overstate, I don't mean that in an arrogant way, guys, but one of the reasons that we're influential is because we welcome that debate inside our organization. In other words, I don't think we could be called, as, as you did to paraphrase you early in this, in this show, influential, you know, one of the leading lights of the conservative movement, were we not reflecting with our personnel the conservative movement? And so, yes, we have inside heritage libertarian-leaning economists. We have inside heritage, pro-life, social conservatives. They not only are inside heritage, but under my leadership, they're now working under the same roof. Um, figuratively, they had been split for good reasons between an economic focus center and a, and a kind of social focus center. I believe that a lot of those divisions are false. And if you spend time with either of these groups of, of folks inside heritage, you would realize great people all, wonderful colleagues all, collegial all. They all participated, for example, in the big tech paper. Why don't we lead the movement by example and put them under the same domestic policy center, which is now led by Roger Severino, who just started here in the last couple of days. All of that to say, guys, these tensions are good and our talking about these tensions are good. And it's really important just to look forward a bit in time as I sum up that, yes, it is a fair 
accusation, it's a fair observation to make that some folks in our movement believe that as the free market goes, so goes society. That's in fact inverted. And I say that as a historian, I, I know a little bit about a few things and one of them is history. And it's an inversion of how the free market emerged to say that. And so what we need to rem- remember is that it's from a healthy civil society. As the monks of Salamanca in Spain nearly 1,000 years ago first observed, from which the free market emerges. And therefore, the free market will flourish if and only if civil society first and foremost is healthy. Kevin, uh, I've got a higher education question for you. Of course, you've been uh, you know, leading in, in higher education as president of Wyoming Catholic. And uh, my question is, you know, at ISI, we take an all hands, sort of a, uh, not all hands on deck, all of the above approach when it comes to tackling the beast of higher education today. And, and by that, what I mean is that, you know, we work with small private, you know, Christian schools, places like Hillsdale, Thomas Aquinas, Grove City. We work with state uh, universities. We have professors at Berkeley, UW-Madison, University of Texas, Austin. And then we also have, you know, pockets at the Ivy Leagues. And we work with centers on campus and newspapers and student groups. So we're kind of trying to tackle this higher education crisis which I really think is is marked by you know debt decadence and decline all the way through, with the exception of a, a few few good places. So I'm wondering, you know, do you see there being any possibility of meaningful reform within higher education at a broad level in the United States? And if so, you know, how can we, you know, maybe push or edge the system to a point of collapse uh, so that reform, meaningful reform might be possible? Man, uh, thanks for that question. You know, I, I don't have expertise in many public policy fields, but I guess I do in higher ed, having been a practitioner and done some research since I was a practitioner every day in it. And so I think a lot in the, in the little bit of time I have left each day to, to kind of do my own policy work on higher ed, it's where I spend my time. And so I'll try not to go too far afield here, Johnny, although there's a long list of things that need to change. But let me lead with the lead. And the lead is people have to stop investing in their alma maters if their alma maters are not fully on board with their worldview. And, you know, I'm just going to pause there, take a very quick moment of silence for that to register. Stop giving money. Stop giving rhetorical support to your alma mater, however special it was however special it is, however many generations of your family went, if it is opposed to American values. If we decide to do that, then whatever D.C. decides to do, whatever Congress decides to do, whatever the next reform administration decides to do via executive order, and there's plenty they can appropriately, then it's going to be good. And what it's going to do is hasten the falling into the proverbial sea of most of the institutions of higher learning in this country. Look, if you if you know me, if you read what I write and you listen to what I speak to, not that I recommend you do any of that, but if you do, you know, I don't speak that way. I love this country. I love institutions in this country. I went to school many, many years with left of center people who are still my friends. And I was always unabashedly conservative. I've just realized there's no way of reforming higher ed. And so what we have to do is stop giving support to institutions who are opposed to what we believe and truly lean into those institutions you mentioned. Hillsdale, Grove City, Thomas Aquinas, Wyoming Catholic, Christendom, 
the list can go on and on. The University of Austin, it's, it is uh, will soon be operating literally in the shadow of my alma mater, the University of Texas at Austin. All of that to say, we got about five years, maybe 10 to fix this. Heritage wants to hasten the demise of these poorly intentioned, well-funded institutions by ending, tearing out root and branch from federal code, the U.S. Department of Education. Because it's our tax money, quote unquote, invested in higher ed that has given them this power and it's time to take it away. You know, speaking of education uh, and speaking as a social conservative, one of the most encouraging developments of the last couple of years is that social conservatives, again, speaking as one, have generally been a pretty pessimistic bunch because we're used to losing over and over again for the last couple of decades. But the the recent emergence of the, these new culture war issues, specifically critical race theory and sort of progressive sexual and gender ideology centered in public schools and to a certain extent, higher education. But I think a lot of this is happening at the school board level um, is a place where for the first time, at least in my young life, uh, uh, where social conservatives and cultural conservatives are winning pretty resoundingly. And it's really exciting to see legacy institutions like Heritage lean into that uh, recently so I'm curious, you know, could you talk a little bit about Heritage's involvement in the sort of education culture war, for lack of a better word, and sort of the, the project that you guys are doing and how you guys are thinking about leading that? Yeah, thanks for the question. Look, we're going to win. And, and I say that as someone who shared your pessimism as recently as five years ago. Uh, I mean, I guess I've always been supernaturally optimistic because I know as a Christian, I'm going to win in the end where I, I might, you know, it, God's grace if I behave. But you get the point that uh, we ought not presume our creator's will by have, being down of the dumps. That's what the left wants us to do. So let's at least look like we're going to win. And having grown up watching the Atlanta Braves in the 1970s and 80s, when they would lose 100 games, 110 games, I remember turning to my grandfather, with whom I watched almost all these games every year, and I said, will we ever win? And he said, one day. And sure enough, he, he lived long enough to see them win a World Series. That baseball anecdote ought to give us hope. And what I mean by that is persistence, persistence, persistence. And so what I think is, is happening is that Americans, some of whom are apolitical, have been awakened They've been really startled out of their sleep by what school districts and governments did during the overwrought COVID shutdowns. And what they saw was not only were these school districts politicizing their, their response to COVID, but that they weren't willing to show them the curricula that their students, their children were learning. And some of that curricula happened to be critical race theory, happened to be the kinds of uh, transgender extreme nonsense that, praise God, the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis have acted against. All of that to say, what that has done, and this is crucial, this is crucial, it has changed something on the right, on the political right, that was a real problem to getting education reform done. This is no more true than it is in Texas, where rural Republicans, otherwise good guys and gals, have been obstinate when it comes to school choice. And so until and unless every dollar we invest in public education goes to the student of a family's choice, we will not have won. But I'm just here to predict 
that over the next five years, we will dramatically expand our victories in education reform, including universal school choice, because the American people have always been the last best hope for freedom. And the American people have had enough with centralized power, with educrats, and with people with fancy degrees telling them that they know better what's best for their children than they do as their parents. The Heritage Foundation has always worked on education reform, but we're embracing our leadership role in the culture wars. And I hope you hear in my voice and and y'all can see in my body language how excited I am about it because we're going to win. One of our questions that we ask every uh, guest on our show, uh, Dr. Roberts, is um, how they would define conservatism. And I think anyone listening to this episode can kind of glean just from um, your remarks uh, about kind of what you believe conservatism is. But to have kind of a truffle of an answer, I guess, could you please tell us how what you would describe conservatism to be? Mm, a truffle of an answer. I've given chocolate up for Lent, so uh, we'll, we'll see how I do. The um, Well, conservatism is a set of ideas that is predicated upon a group of citizens in various parts of civil society, whether that be local community or uh, state level or even the federal level, deciding that the eternal things, eternal principles, the permanent things will be honored by the decisions they make. And so from seemingly small trifles like when garbage is picked up and how orderly and efficient that is by our local municipality to really big questions like the role of government in education, conservatives will always, always, always default to the principle of subsidiarity, comma, knowing that there are a few exceptions, as our founders understood, to do what government exists to do solely. This is the only thing government exists to do, and it is to promote our freedom. Semicolon, for my libertarian friends, freedom is not the freedom to do whatever the heck we want, but the freedom to do what we ought. Comma, meaning the public square is not neutral. The public square is what we conservatives make it to be, and it needs to be a heck of a lot more friendly to families, to institutions of civil society, and to subsidiarity. Comma, and the Heritage Foundation, forever and ever, amen, will be leading that effort. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. If people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Heritage.org. That's where the smart people are. Uh, I would also recommend, because people are looking for conservative, or at least kind of right-minded, fair news outlets, dailysignal.com is our media platform. And if you must be on the, the devil's social media channel known as Twitter, you can find me at Kevin Roberts TX. Thanks again for joining us, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Y'all do great work. And thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. ISI.